Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And this is episode 84. And tonight we are covering the top five thrillers of the 2000s. Do you remember how this list came up, Frank? Uh, no. I think it's a random one. I think I think it's when we were, like did that whole thing at the bar one night where we came up with like five it, random episodes. Oh, right, because it was a decade. Yeah. But I got yeah. excited for it when it came up because, you know. Yeah. Some good thrillers of the 2000s. I can't remember what any of those episodes are now because it's like been, it feels like, uh, even though it's been like, uh, what, nine months, it feels like it's been seven years. Yes. Um, so I can't even remember which ones were which, but it feels like the, all the ones we got really excited about, maybe that was the alcohol. Because it feels like when we get to them, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Comedies of the 1940s. Right. That's the last one. Yeah. That's yeah I, was, I was pretty hyped for that. Yeah. I still think that would be fun. We never Musicals heard. of the 1960s. Yes, that was a randomly generated one. Yep. But yeah, you got good that movies on here. Um, interesting movies. Uh, when we're looking at the 2000s, in terms of... Now, thrillers, I'm trying to remember. Like, You like thrillers, right? Um, most of the time. A lot of times I can take them or leave them because I feel like most of them are just kind of cliche. Like, I don't know how much, I don't know. Like, it's always, like, some weirdo stalking some, like, attractive waifish, I don't know. Or some shit with, like, spies or something like that. And I'm not a huge fan of, like, movies about spies and stuff. Okay, so, so, like, Lake Placid and Reindeer Games are out. Lake Placid's about freaking crocodiles right is it oh i thought that what, what am i thinking of then what's the stalking one that has lake in it oh uh, i don't know hmm. there's one with like has a body of water like a lake or something in it i don't know lake placid is um the one that has the betty white thing that led to the, all the betty white memes of her like oh yeah it is yeah and stuff. there's a couple that we've already talked about on previous lists that could have made this list i think um, or would have made this list. Lakeview Terror. Lakeview Terrace is what I'm thinking of. Oh, the Samuel Jackson mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, to me, like that's kind of like boring. I don't know. I mean, I guess that yeah. there's some tension there, but I just don't care about it. Um, you know, because we had we've already talked about history of violence, and we've talked about No Country for Old Men, and we, you know, right. Um, no Country guess, for Old Men, and we've talked about. Uh, I mean, American Psycho kind of falls in that category, yeah, sure. which we talked about last month, and. I mean, some of the some ones. Other, some Sorry. Other stuff too that like I would have liked that maybe could have made the list. Like, I don't know if you remember the Prestige. I think mm-hmm. you went and saw the Prestige with me. Nope, I didn't. Oh, I saw it with somebody in the theater. Um, but I enjoyed that. It's just like, I don't know. I feel like it's a Nolan movie, and that people talk about Nolan movies enough. Um, so I didn't really want to talk about it again. So the five that I picked are ones that either I don't think we would ever talk about on any other list or are ones that I think are kind of like lesser known maybe in some ways. So things that like commonly like get classified under thriller when you Google things or look at different websites, um, I'm assuming you think of them as different genres. So things like the Bourne movies, you think of those as action movies, right? As opposed to thrillers necessarily? Yeah. Yeah. Action. Right. Training Day? 
Um, Training Day is more of a crime movie to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't... I think thrillers can have elements of, like, crime movies in them, but I think at a certain point, a movie becomes... Like, not a thriller anymore, and it's just a straight-up, like, crime film, I guess. Right. So, what Maybe. about something like Memento? I just don't like Memento, so I don't know. Right. But what, it's just Memento's in terms a thriller. Of a thriller, sure. okay. And Memento actually, like, thematically fits in with at least three of the movies on this list. And mm-hmm. honestly, well, yeah, three, like, definitely. Um, it's, I don't know, there's something about Nolan, man, that, like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm unfair to Memento, because it's been a really long time since I've seen it. And people that we know, like, love Memento mm-hmm. a lot. And I think that having to watch it a whole bunch when I was, like, Shit, when did Memento come out? 2000? Yeah. Yeah, so I would have been in my early 20s. Right. And, um, you know, I think that I just kind of like, in the same way that I've tuned out, I tuned out Apocalypse Now for the better part of like two decades because I had to watch it so much in such a short period of time that I just didn't enjoy it anymore. Well, you're not a big fan of gimmicks. And Memento... And I liked Memento. I've only seen it the one time, like in 2000, 2001. And I liked it, but I never understood where it was like a mind-blowing experience. It's it's a gimmick, and it relies on the gimmick. And the gimmick's well done, I think, but it's still a gimmick. And you don't like gimmicks. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. I don't. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think of movies that have gimmicks that I actually enjoy. I mean, that's Nolan's thing, right? Like, yeah, Nolan's all sure. about, like, gimmicking. And I don't know. Like, I feel like in a lot of ways, like, it becomes cheap. Like, I don't mind a movie having, like, a unique premise or whatever. I don't know. Something like Pi or whatever. Right? Like, the Aronofsky movie, which I think is fine. Um, and that's kind of gimmicky in its own way. But it's yeah, just see, like... I didn't like Pi at all. Yeah. I don't know. It's been... Yeah. Um, so I think that's Nolan's thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, and I I still think he's a good director in the sense of like the way he films, but I his story sometimes, depending on what it is, like bother me. He also is interested in things that I don't particularly care about. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like that's you know completely on me, but like. His really like stark devotion to science fiction, mm-hmm. um, and what I consider the more boring elements of science fiction, like I just don't care most of the time. So, right. so how? What about Panic Room? I don't think that's a very good movie. Okay, I'm just going through like list of popular, th- what's classified as thrillers here. Um, I kind of feel like that's Fincher's like. Maybe biggest stumble. Panic Room. Now, something like The Departed, do you consider that crime? That's a crime movie. Yeah. Um, Inside Man, is that crime? Yeah, also. Yeah. Mystic River Crime, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Procedural crime at that. Let me ask you something here. This is like the second or third time I brought this movie up on a podcast of like um, before we start our top five. And now I'm 
considering this is a movie I think that Chris loves, but Frank is indifferent to. I think it would probably make the top five. Collateral. Yeah, I'm indifferent to that movie. Yeah. Because that was a movie I didn't really give much of a chance. I, I saw Collateral once mm-hmm. in the theater. And honestly, I don't think I saw it in like one sitting. I think it was one of those things where I walked in and watched like two thirds of it on like a slow day and then had to go out and do something at work and then went back in like a couple days later and just saw the ending of it. And I'd like kind of forgotten some of it by then. So maybe I should give collateral another chance. I know people like it quite a bit, but I don't know. So yeah, I don't know what to tell you about collateral. Yeah, I don't know. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, all these are going to be considered like crime or something to you, or like sci-fi or something along those lines. What about yeah, one hour, one one hour photo. Oh, that almost made the list. Yeah, that's definitely a thriller. Did so you to have me, to yeah, me like to really be a thriller? It's got to take place. Typically, thrillers don't take place in like a large number of settings or have like a huge amount of characters. You know, it's like. You think of something like that Audrey Hepburn movie, like Wait Until Dark, where she's like the blind woman in the mm-hmm. house. Right. It's like one protagonist, four antagonists, and like one setting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's a thriller where right. you're like singularly focused on one person getting out of a bad situation. So do you? So for that reason, Collateral. Then, if you remember the movie well enough, is a thriller. Then. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't. I collateral is definitely a thriller. But Training Day is crime because it deals with the cops, kind of. Do you think? Like, I think so. Okay. I think because the thriller aspect of it is more about like police doing bad things, basically. Gotcha. Okay. All right. It's like Makes if you sense. look at the Shield, like the television series. Mm-hmm. There's elements of a thriller in like almost every one of those episodes. Sure. But it's a crime drama. You know what right. I mean? Right, I got you. Because it, anything that really focuses on law enforcement, like Copland is a good example. Copland has a lot of elements of a thriller and is like probably mm-hmm. like more of a classic thriller than a cop, like a crime procedural. Right. But in the end, it's a crime procedural because the main focus is about the police and, you know. So at its core the- then, based on what you're saying, so it's, is person or persons in peril like there's sort of some sort of hunt or chase usually involved yeah in a thriller um or a stalking or something along those lines or somebody trying to extricate themselves from a bad situation yeah or a mystery involving like someone's personal life or you know gotcha and typically the person that's in peril is not someone who's a trained professional you know what i mean right, like right for whatever you say like training days about two people who are like professional law enforcement agents. Right. I don't, so yeah, I just don't, maybe that's like a silly distinction, but I look at those as just being crime movies as opposed to. Well, so you would put the, if it's, a, if it is a crime thriller, the crime goes first. Yeah. And so to me, that's like, right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right. I just wanted to, so is there anything else that, you did consider for this list that you remember? Like I said, one hour photo came close to making it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also tough for me in terms of like 
is something a horror movie. So, like, the number five movie on the list is really close to, like, like having the distinction of being more of a horror movie mm-hmm. than it is, uh, you know, a thriller to me. Like, Rear Window is a thriller. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that. that's what, when I think of, like, what a thriller is, that's what I, yeah. no, that's... in my head, hold as, like, the ultimate example. Or, like, Vertigo or something. Sure. Like, because there's stuff, you know, there's stuff like From Hell, which I think is a fine movie. I mean, it's not, I don't think it belongs on this list necessarily, but, like, I, I looked at a list of, like, thrillers in the 2000s, and I went through them, and I saw that on there, and I was thinking, like, well, to me, that's, like, an alternate history, like, crime horror movie, mm-hmm. and not necessarily a thriller, so I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just right. that I have a really far too narrow of a definition of what a thriller is, but... I don't know. Well, I mean, I think you can call any like a for. I think you call so many movies a thriller. It might be better to have a more clearer definition as opposed to a broader definition. Yeah, I agree. So, um, all right. So let's go ahead and get started since you talk, brought up that number five movie. So, number five movie on your list is 2007's Inside. It is directed by Alexander Bustillo. Um, it stars Julian Mori, Allison. Paradis and Beatrice Dahlia. It is an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a 75% from audiences. Uh, this is in the number five spot, so why don't you tell us a little bit about it and why you have it at number five? Um, so it's number five because, again, like I said, it's really right on that line where it's probably more horror than thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, like thinking about it, it meets what my definition of like a classic thriller is. So. Sure. Sure. Premise is um, woman who's in her late, like maybe third trimester. They don't really say like where she is when she gets in the accident. She gets in a car accident where her husband is killed. Um, she's pregnant. She survives the car accident along with her unborn baby, but she's kind of lost the will to live in a lot of ways. Like she's alienated most people from her life. She's not particularly interested in the health or sex of her child, although she's not like you know negligent she's just not like like losing her husband has kind of made her i don't know i don't know what you like just morose and disconnected um while she's at the last doctor's appointment before she's about to give birth um, which takes place on christmas eve she meets a um, vulgar foul-mouthed nurse who smokes in front of her and is just kind of a terrible woman um she goes home, locks herself in for the night, and is visited pretty early on by um, a shadowy figure lady who initially pretends to be someone looking for help, like, because her car broke down, but then reveals that she knows who she is, um, Sarah, who's the protagonist of the movie, um, tries to force her way in, and then basically makes her way into the house, um, attacks Sarah while she's asleep and tries to extricate her baby with a pair of scissors. Um, and then it kind of just devolves from there uh, with like kind of sort of a cat and mouse all taking place within the confines of her um, small French cottage. Um, the one thing that kind of, I mean, it's, it's the stalking aspect um, and what you eventually learn the reason for the stalking is. And then 
also just kind of the like the singular like focus of the antagonist this like unnamed woman on trying to kill sarah and take her baby away from her um i think there's a lot of really good tension in it the one thing that to me really pushes it more towards the horror is the sort of like jason-esque unkillable nature of the woman and the fact that she's able to murder what five Mm-hmm. police officers roughly, like roughly. well-trained police officers plus um a couple other people it's just sort of unbelievable in that respect and i think purposefully so like you know because it obviously is styled after a horror movie but um i think the i think the ending of the movie is really shocking um i think the like i i find the special effects like the practical effects so people getting stabbed to be pretty grotesque and effective. Um, it definitely makes you uncomfortable in several of the scenes with the way that she like dispatches um, the people that are like trying to save Sarah basically. Um, and again, like the ending of the movie is in, in my opinion, when I first saw it was completely unexpected. Um, interesting note about this movie is it was remade in 2016 um with the lead actress from our number one movie in the role of the antagonist really um yeah but so completely changes um tonally like the a lot of what happens in the movie Mm. including um i don't know it, it it does too much to explain things like neatly and also has a much different ending Mm. Um, like an entirely different ending. So I kind of found that off-putting. But I like this movie. Um, I was pretty surprised. This was one of those movies that came out, I can't remember what film company, Dimension Films, put out like seven or eight movies in around this time, so 2007, 2008, um, that were imports from other countries. Uh, so they did this. Um, they did a movie called... Um, Frontiers, which is one of my favorite slashers of the 2000s, um, and a couple other movies that, like, there's a satanic cult movie they did that's not too bad, Borderlands, I think it's called, um, and then a couple other ones that aren't that great, but this was something I got at Walmart for, like, probably, like, $7, or which just really didn't know anything about it and was pretty surprised, impressed. Watching it again this time is probably, only like, the third time I've seen this movie, because I found it really difficult to watch the first couple times. Um, but yeah, I just think, I think it's really tense. I think it builds like a sense of tension and dread. Um, and also, you know, like makes a really unlikable and menacing antagonist in the woman who's like unnamed throughout the movie. So yeah. What would you consider the poor points of it? There's some CGI in it that feels, um, dated even for 2007 um it's kind of jarring a couple times when they use it like it's not used much but the couple times it's used it just feels unnecessary like i don't know what it necessarily adds to the movie except just to do it um i think some of the people make really stupid decisions in it yeah, but I mean that's it's a horror that's movie, in that respect. Yeah. so like you know what do you want? 
Um, other than that, like I don't know. I think it's yeah. I think it's a brisk pace. Um, I think it's well acted by the two principal leads. Um, and again, I think it's a pretty shocking ending. Like when you first, especially because you have the mindset that one thing is going to happen, and then that's not the thing that happens. Right. They even set it up where you can you kind sure. of feel like that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Like you're waiting for right. like the big, you know, the the big climax where whatever, like I don't know. Again, it's it's not something I really want to spoil because I think that if Yeah, no, it, understood, yeah. Not that anyone who listens to this is ever gonna watch it because it's like I think expensive as shit online and I still have for some reason my D V D from two thousand seven. Yeah, right, yeah, you have to like that's how that DVD, right? Yeah, because it's I think like twelve dollars or something like that on Google and Amazon. Yeah, it's not worth that. Yeah, I mean, I probably paid like a few dollars less than that when I originally bought it, and I think that was the right price. Right. But it's a good movie, and if you ever find it for free anywhere, the ability to watch it, you should watch it. Yeah, there. I can't remember. I've read about it. There's some sort of. It'll probably be up at some point, like somewhere, like it's some sort of shit with production companies that needs to get sorted out. Um, well, and probably because Dimension doesn't exist anymore. Right. Yeah. So the American rights are owned by a company that whoever owns Miramax owns Dimension. So I don't know. Disney company, I guess, right? Yeah. And who knows if yeah, they would. Right. It's not like they're going to put it up on Disney Plus. So. Yeah. Well, Peacocks has Secretary up, which I wouldn't thought I'd never seen NBC like having like something like Secretary like up on their um, streaming yeah. service. So you never know. That's true. Um. I'm honestly, I was really surprised by the critical acclaim. It must not be that many reviews, or it must have been really niche, like reviewers. Oh, I honestly can't remember. Um, let me just browse that again real quick. I was surprised by it too, but that's only because hey, it's 13 total reviews, um, and only two are listed as top critics. So yeah, a lot of them are horror websites or um, like bloody disgusting. Sure. Yeah. Um, horror. The only, the only review I remember reading at the time was from any cool news. Mm. Did a review of it. And I don't know if it was a review. I think it was one of those. Um, uh, any cool news is never on Rotten Tomatoes. Harry's DVDs of the week thing or whatever. Sure. Right. Fucking Harry. Um, right. Uh, now, I mean, I got, um, a few like top critics give it good reviews and stuff like that too. Um, yeah, I mean they're all like three out of uh, you know four stars type things or four out of four stars or yeah. B's or A minuses and yeah. Um, I don't know. I I lost interest in this movie actually once the uh second half started like i thought it was a really intriguing build-up like of what's going on and who this person is and um but once like the actual horror elements started i just thought it was something like i've seen before and until the ending like you said like the that you know subversion of expectations that happens um and even then i was just kind of turned off by like the grotesque nature of the whole thing so it's definitely um, something that watching it, like I was blown away by the, the gore in it when I right. first saw it. Sure. And I was still a little more, I don't know what the word is, like in, like I was not quite as sensitive to stuff like that as I am now. Like I've gotten more sensitive, 
sensitive mm-hmm. to it as I've gotten older. Yeah. And so I really feel like that was part of the thing where, like, the appeal of it. But I still find it to be a pretty interesting story, and I think that um, yeah. I, I I think that the the antagonist that lady does a fantastic job. Yeah, like, I do too. Just building a sense of menace. I think the actors are good in it. Um, yeah, I didn't have a problem with that. It was just I just thought it became like uh, something that was interesting, and suddenly it became something that was like a lot of other things. Um, like at the end, and plus, I'll just be honest, that CGI fetus like right. is the worst damn gimmick like that I've seen in quite a while. Like, because what they do is they have like you know they show you the CGI fetus, and every time she gets like thrown around, like it shows the fetus moving inside, like and like jostling around. And it's like, in all fairness, it only happens like four times in the movie. Like, it's and it, it's still just off putting when it, it happens. It's, it's bad. That that was my opinion. That I, I I think that's dumb too. It's, it's yeah. my right. But yeah. If, and the thing is, is like if you didn't have it in there, what do you lose? You know, because you don't lose anything right. by like removing that CGI. Right. You lose right. like a minute of film right. and no import right. to the story. Like you know that she's pregnant, so you know there's a baby in there. So right. Like why show the baby? And I I think it was just. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any idea why. Right. Uh, okay. So number four on your list is 2005's Hard Candy. It's directed by David Slade. Stars Ellen Page, Patrick Wilson, and Sandra Oh. Has a 67% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 78% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about the movie and why you have it on the list? Um, so pretty... Pretty simple premise overall. Um, Ellen Page is, I, I don't know if this was her debut role, but pretty early on in her film career. Juno was before, right, a year before this. So. Um, 14 year old who's kind of lured to this cafe um, by this older man um, who's a photographer, uh, set up as like kind of a, like an online predator. Um, the initial set up to the movie is that she's kind of enamored with him and he convinces her to come back to his house where he, you know, seemingly plies her with alcohol and um, is trying to get her to, like, take her clothes off to take photographs. And then about 30 minutes into the movie, they completely flip the tables on that where the Ellen Page character um, knows who this guy is and knows that he's a sexual predator and has drugged him and tied him up and is basically torturing him to get him to admit to um, the murder of another young girl that had gone missing. Uh, that they foreshadowed pretty well and pretty subtly, I think. Um, like, I noticed that watching it this time, like, the subtle foreshadowing of the fact that that girl, you know, there is, like, missing women that are associated with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's generally then just, like, like a one-setting like what I consider to be like the truest like distillation of what a thriller is, which is two people at odds with each other, um, where the end result is that one person's gonna like die or, you know, come out worse for the wear and the other person is gonna get what they want. Um, there's a couple of moments where you think he gets away, but she still maintains the upper hand. Um and then the end result, you know, is her basically convincing him to end his life. Um and you find out that he does admit that he was involved in like this girl's killing and 
you never really get a clear picture of like who she is or where she's from, except for the fact that she has a vested interest in, you know, taking out these people that were responsible for this girl's murder. Um, brilliant performances by Wilson and um, Paige. Um, I'm actually, I mean, I know Ellen Page has been like active the entire time, but after this in Juno, I thought she was going to be much bigger than I guess maybe she ended up being. Like, I really thought that there would be a lot more that you would see from Ellen Page, because I think that her, for being so young and it being such like a uncomfortable theme, like I think she does a great job combining almost like a unnaturally mature approach to things with like still some elements of like innocence. Um, he's appropriately creepy and um, unnerving as this guy who's, you know, obviously like a predator um, trying to convince her that he's not a predator the entire time. And you can see like where his use of words has probably worked on other women in the past or other girls, as she says. Someone um, who shits real quick on Patrick Wilson consistently, like at every given moment, like throughout this podcast, pretty much, this is the best thing that I've ever seen him in. Oh, yeah. It's it's a controlled and nuanced performance. And yeah, probably like the best thing I've ever seen him do. Um, yeah, but just really taught. Um, it sets you up a couple of times with some false expectations and things have happened and then sort of like reset your expectations for what's actually happening in the movie. So it never really lets you get comfortable with what you're seeing, um, which I think is um, pretty brilliant considering the subject matter. Like you don't want to get comfortable with it. Um, it's never exploitive in that sense. Like they don't show you any, you look at something like nine or eight millimeter. I don't know if you remember that movie. Yeah. Um, we'll have to talk about that someday on the quick cage, but um, sort of a similar idea in terms of like sexual exploitation of like people for whatever the perversion of these like predators and monsters. But eight millimeter still tries to make it titillating at times. And I think that hard candy shows like a pretty admirable amount of restraint by never making it titillating, like not sexualizing her, not letting you see images of like young girls in sexual positions. Like I think that's a really important thing. Um, that just lets you focus on him, especially because it also never really lets you know until, like, I don't know, a large portion of the way through the movie. That well, it's like it's like five minutes left till you really know. Right. That you know for sure Yeah, that he's done anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, because they really build it up for a long time to be that he's just a sad dude. Right. Who maybe, like, had a bad breakup that's led him to, like, you know, like make some questionable decisions, but you never get to know for sure until the very right. end. Sure. The monster that she claims that he is. Mm -hmm. um, which is, it's really good that it, like, they do a good job of still like building those characters through the entire time. My only real complaint about the movie is the Sandra O part is 100% unnecessary. Like, right. not only does it add nothing to, right, even like that immediate moment of the scene that she's in. But then they never pay it off again afterwards. It's true. Like there's no consequence to it or no whatever. Um, I mean, just to give some back. So Sandra O oh plays the neighbor of um, the Patrick Wilson character who lives in this like affluent, um, I don't know, like Los Angeles suburb, like this really nice house somewhere in California. Um, 
and she sees Ellen Page walking around on his roof, which there's no reason for her to be on the roof at that point. Mm-hmm. And then goes over to deliver Girl Scout cookies where Ellen Page has to pretend to be Patrick Wilson's niece and she's caring for him while he's ill. And you can tell that Sandra Oh doesn't necessarily fully believe the story, but then doesn't call the police, doesn't come back to investigate. There's just no, you know, no payoff to it. And then the movie ends without ever even addressing it again. So an unnecessary, like, four minutes of the movie that could have been cut down cut out completely and you wouldn't have lost anything you could have had her distracted by any number of things to set sure. up sure what's happening inside right. the house right you know yeah but other than that like well pretty well directed um like i said pretty taut um pretty uncomfortable throughout and just really like a good and engaging movie yeah yeah david slate hasn't had um much of a not not much of a career since then i guess um he was pretty much a music video director primarily. And then uh, he directs 30 days a night a couple years after this. Right. And then he, um, and then he directs one of the twilight movies. And then the next thing on his cinema. Oh, he directed Bandersnatch. That's interesting. Um, and he also did a segment in nightmare cinema, um, which a horror anthology. Which I did not like that at all. Um, that's a, I guess that's the only other thing I've actually seen of his, like, in full. Because I've never seen 30 Days a Night, actually. Um, and I didn't like that segment. It's fine. Yeah. It's not good, I guess, but it's not, like, terrible either. Right. Patrick Wilson's in that segment in Nightmare Cinema, too. Um <clears throat> So yeah, I mean he hasn't had, but I, I I'm surprised though because he's um yeah he's a capable director you know um at least watching yeah. this um so Dessen Thompson um from the Washington Post who's the same person as Dessen Howe um interesting I had to like look that up because I've seen this like I just always thought people had his name wrong on Rotten Tomatoes so I finally looked it up to see like why are why is he Destin Thompson sometimes and sometimes Destin Howe um what it is is that he in like 06 or 07 reconnects with his biological father and ends up taking his name so he's Destin Howe for most of his life, and then when he reconnects with his father, he changes his name back to his father's name, Destin Thompson. Um, and then I was like, Destin Thompson, like, was a like, and I looked him up, looked into him further, because it's like I thought I recognized the name Thompson when I saw it. Um, he was actually he ended up like leaving the Washington Post, and he's a, he was a speechwriter for Obama um, throughout like uh, both terms. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, so this guy that we always talk about, Dustin Howe, um, on here, because he's always is shitting on movies that you end up having on your list. Um, yeah, ended up, like, you know, a lot of these are old reviews from the 90s and 2000s, and um, he ended up being Obama, a key speechwriter for Obama. Um, but he, um, he compares this to uh, Death of a Maiden in some ways. Um, in the sense that, like, you know, they're both, you know, trapped men by women who you don't know who's telling the truth necessarily. Um, and he says the the big difference, though, is that there's a moral dimension to Death and the Maiden, where here, 
Um, he says that it's clearly the movie believes pedophiles should be chopped in little pieces and buried in an unmarked grave. However, its only purpose is exploitative. Sure, it's a cautionary tale to all those sicko wolves out there, but it's nothing more than an unabashed lurking dreadfest. He says that the best horror thrillers um, don't just scare you, that they leave you reflective about human nature in some ways. And he feels that in the long run that, um, uh, that you don't really know quite enough about Jeff and the same with, you know, the Ellen Page character. Um, and it's hard to find a warm spot for anyone here or for those who created them is the way he ends his review. Um, and I guess I can see the point about like, not that idea of like the, the reflective nature in some way, like, I suppose yeah. I can see that. I mean, I don't know if it changes the fact that like, it's a tall, you know, tense movie, um, whatsoever. Um, that's enjoyable when you watch it, but I think I can agree that it doesn't necessarily make you think about it much afterwards. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think the more interesting thing is is her more than him. I mean, I don't know. Like, I I like the complexity to her as a character. Mm-hmm. You know, almost that like exterminating angel thing. Like, right? Do the you know do the ends justify the means, or does the right? So maybe it's not as morally complex from the point of view of like the antagonist you know where it is in death and the maiden but they're not really the same movie right it's like we watched did you watch that la 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 llorona um movie from argentina i did not no. very similar there mm-hmm. where the idea and there's a lot of movies from like argentina and south america that kind of have the same premise mm-hmm. if someone's a monster because they're just doing what they think they're supposed to do. Are they really a monster? Like, can you have right. someone that did, you know, but I mean, right. I think, no, like, I think, yeah, they're still a monster. Like, I don't know. Like the guy's a pedophile and he's an avowed, like, you know, he's obviously a successful one. Mm-hmm. Like, he's made a career out of like photographing young women in various states of undress. Sure. And it's like, at least a couple times, like use that to whatever like take advantage of those women and I don't know like I think that I think it's okay to know who your antagonist is you know mm-hmm. like I don't think you need to have all them I don't think every movie needs to be exactly the same and I don't think you always need that moral ambiguity to your villain I think sometimes the best villains are ones that you know are bad from the beginning right so and you don't know how bad he is right like throughout movies you don't yeah I no, mean I, I think, think what does he he admits eventually to like the first one of the first models sleeping with i think at some point in the movie but you don't necessarily know beyond that like what he's done right but i don't even know if that's like not that could be even under duress honestly but i don't think it is if i remember correctly i'm pretty sure it's not but um yeah it's just the threat of exposure to the one person that yeah he ever really loved in his life sure which honestly i think is more of a cop-out than anything because it's almost screenwriter and director kind of saying like hey this guy's into little girls because this one young woman that he was in love with like left him and right. he's just trying to recapture that like yeah right it's almost a little too much um 
Yeah. In the way of, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, um, like a cop out towards him is like this. A potentially sympathetic figure. This is why he's doing it. Not that he yeah. is a monster, but that he's like been created in some way. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand. Yeah. What you mean. Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a tense movie. Um, they keep you kind of I think to some degree on the edge of your seat. Um, really good performances by both leads, and yeah, I mean I I enjoyed watching it. Um, yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah. So okay, so number three on your list is 2004's The Machinist, directed by Brad Anderson. It stars Christian Bale, Jennifer Jason Lee, John Sherian. Um, Itina Sanchez Guion and Michael Ironside has a 77% from critics and 83% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about the movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so Bale plays uh, Trevor Resnick, who the titular machinist um, works in a union shop as like a die cutter or something like in a really heavy machinery role. Um, has been suffering from insomnia for the better part of a year, which has left him distracted and emaciated. Um, weighs himself every day, which they show early in the movie, and he weighs something like 121 pounds. Um, visits a prostitute uh, who has sort of a more of like a human interest in him. Like even though she takes his money, it feels like she's actually like attracted to and like interested in him as a human. Um, also visits a waitress um, at a diner at the airport every night um, for a cup of coffee who also seems to have like a passing romantic interest or at least like the interest to know him better. Um, starts to hallucinate or like see things that other people don't see necessarily. Um, during one of his reveries where he feels like he's seeing this man um, who may or may not like exist at his job uh, causes a grievous in injury to one of his coworkers, which sort of is the last straw that kind of makes him run afoul of like um, the rest of his coworkers where nobody wants to work with him anymore. Um, and then it starts to play around with the idea of like perception and reality. Um, I mean, the opening shot of the movie is him disposing of a body um, in a rolled up carpet like at an abandoned whatever like a wharf or something mm -hmm. um and it, he like sort of in the same way that like memento does it plays with the idea of like what is actually real and what he's seeing and you come to find out that like a lot of the people that he felt like he was seeing aren't actually there um including um maria is that her name the waitress lisa yeah. waitress um isn't actually the waitress there and there's like an extended scene like where they go to like Coney Island or some like amusement park together. And um, so you start to really question whether anything happened. Um, and then the end result is that you find that uh, a year prior he was involved in a hit and run, um, which led to um, the death of the child of the woman who he's imagining is like his waitress. And he's just kind of fallen apart like over the course of that time. Um, really good performance by Bale uh, in this role. Um, I know that Christian Bale's kind of, I don't know if he's really like fallen from grace, but there's a lot of controversy about him and like the way that he treats people on set. And this is when Christian Bale was 
I mean, I would say probably one of the most well-respected actors sure. in film at this point in time. Yeah. Um, the entire cast is pretty stellar, including mm-hmm. uh, a couple of actors from The Wire in minor roles. Right. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is really good in it. Uh, Bale is phenomenal in the role. Um, this is also when Bale was doing like probably the most extreme method acting like ever, where um, this I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the story about this movie was that Christian Bale basically for three months ate one apple a day and would eat nothing else in order to lose the weight for this movie. Um, and did a similar thing when he made um, Rescue Dawn. Did you ever see that? I've never Dark seen Dark? it, but no, I've never seen it. Um, so it's based on uh, this German naval pilot, Dieter or something. I can't remember what the guy's person or last name is. Um, who was down during Vietnam and then was like rescued. And Bale basically did the same thing where they had to film the movie in reverse where he started like at this weight and then like had to gain weight throughout it. Um, But made himself really sick making this movie. I think this is right after Batman too, right? 2004? No, it's, 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 this is a year before Batman. Maybe they were, he had filmed something close to this movie where he had to be like, muscular and yeah, big so, so, so no so he goes well i mean he did it's it, what so american psycho was like 99 or something like that is yeah. that right but yeah he does batman right after this so he basically has to go from this to batman right he had to bulk up and like gain all that weight and then goes back again i guess now in 2006 to rescue dawn which i've, right. I've never seen but rescue dawn's pretty decent yeah but yeah it's um that's an amazing transformation, and it's really disgusting to see. I mean, oh, my God, it's, yeah. There, it's gross. There's a scene early on where he um, is kind of mocking his weight loss to uh, yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee uh-huh. Cross, to character, and sort of turns around and flexes, and, like, mm-hmm. man, this dude is, like, bones, like, skin and bones. It's, yeah. It's horrifying. Yeah. It um, is. And, like, he turns to the side a couple times, and, like, just the angles of like his pelvis leading up into like his midsection and then like up into his sternum. Like it's all just, it's. Yeah. And I get a sense in that scene um, when he does that and she's like, starts like laughing and is like telling him to stop. It's, it's almost like a, like a blooper reel type thing. Like the, what they show in the movie, like it feels extreme, like sincere from like Jennifer's Asian Lee as an actress, like that she's like laughing like that, you know? And, it's also sort of out of character with how he behaves the rest of the movie. It is like goofy, like it's more more like Christian Bale's actual speaking voice, than, right? Um, yeah, the Resnick character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it, it plays well with um again another thing that I think of as being like a hallmark of thrillers, which is um the viewer's concept of reality and um, perception, and I think that movies that can do a good job. Um, not to spoil what's coming up, but like Lynch is probably the master of that, in my opinion, mm-hmm. at least in like modern cinema. Sure. Like subverting your idea of like what you're seeing as being real or <clears throat> whether you can trust the perception, like the yeah. unreliable narrator aspect of them. And Brad Anderson as a director is kind of like a, a blue collar version of that, I think. Um, yeah like a, a very workmanlike approach to kind of what's real, what's not um, in a lot of the things that he 
directs um, when he goes down that route. Um, I mean, there's there's some very Lynchian things in it. Sure. Uh, like the the character of um, Ivan, mm-hmm. um, who may or may not exist, the guy that Bale sees um, sort of as like haunting him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't know if he's like real or not. Um, and it basically turns out to be Bale's just own like interpretation of himself or like self-loathing or whatever. But that kind of stuff is really Lynchian when it first comes up. Although Lynch would never give you like nearly the clear-cut answer that you get from this movie. Um, Lynch would make it much more, I don't know, subtle or... Like, yeah, exactly and I think that's what I mean by I say blue-collar. Like, every, very everyman, like, kind of, like, way of, like, doing altered reality or, you know, psychological thrillers um, is how he does. Because I know you're not a big fan of The Session Nine's very similar um, in or, the way yeah. that it, like, deals with that stuff, so... I don't know why I don't like Session Nine. I just I don't. I feel I, like it's way way too telegraphed. Yeah. Like I think that this. I think that this movie doesn't show its hand until it's too late to have any other. You know what I mean? Like to go it, back. It's honestly. true. It's true. I mean, I I don't know. I rewatched Session Nine for the first time since it came out in like like one or whatever. But um, just in the past few months and. Cause it's free on Netflix and um, I still enjoyed it. And um, like I did the first time, and I still think there's some really effective, creepy stuff in there that, um, sure. that he's capable of. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's probably, and the performances are really good in it, but I, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's to some degree telegraphed, um, you know, and I, but I think that's the problem with kind of having that approach to it as it can be telegraphed. Like you said, he basically holds withholds information from you, until there's like nothing else he never gives you enough information until a certain point and then right. it's and like then okay he gives you all the information right yeah. and then it's just a tragedy at that point mm-hmm. yep yeah. but it's a really effective thriller like throughout and you know i think especially because there is you do feel like some sympathy for christian bale mm-hmm. uh, because he does portray him as a even though he's kind of has this i don't know like morose ennui about him and whatever um, it really does portray him as a, a human being. And right. You do kind of feel for him, like throughout the. Well, and obviously, like, you feel for him too, because even after the fact, it's like you know, obviously, all this is happening subconsciously in him, even though he doesn't remember it. It's right. happening subconsciously. He's punishing himself. Right. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's it's this latent right. like guilt. Yeah. That's coming out. And I, that, that's another thing that to me like is the hallmark of a good thriller is when there's a character that's like haunted by something whether it's yeah. their past or uh-huh. some preconceived notion they have of something or like even like a sense of like fate maybe sure um i, I think that it's really good you know yeah, I see that again very very hitchcockian in it's like the way that it unravels and then very lynchian in like some of the shots and some mm-hmm. of the ways that he um yeah. even in sound there's a little bit of elements of lynch at times in that yeah, and also just in the fact that, like, it shows these places that should be, like, non-threatening and commonplace, mm-hmm. you know, like, like a diner, but outside right. the window of the diner is, like, nothing. It's right. just, right. you can't even see, like, the airplanes flying around, it's just blackness. Yeah. yeah. Or, like, 
you know, like he drives through these streets that just feel like underpopulated and yeah, and it's like for some reason there's always like in the workplace there's always a hint of danger to it. Like yeah. it always feels like there's something threatening, like just always like lurking in the corners, like um, the way he films it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's probably true in like a machine shop like that. Having I mean, worked around enough things like that, and you know, honestly, I, I think that's another good thing is I think that portrayal of the way that those people talk to each other mm-hmm. is one of the more honest and realistic feeling portrayals of like men who work side by side and maybe don't necessarily have like close emotional bonds but share like this bond of almost like shared danger and misery from their jobs right where there's like a mutual respect for like professionalism that kind of transcends like any sort of like personal differences or anything right and they're really small performances but the um is it Lawrence Gillen? Gillian? Gillen? Yeah, Gillian. Gillian. Yeah. Kid that plays D. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy that plays the Carcetti's, um campaign manager are both really good in like really small roles. Yeah. Yeah, just, I, I, it was another one of those movies where I think I bought it without knowing really anything about it just because it was Bale. And because right. it was, like I, I read the stories about his weight loss sport and was pretty, pretty impressed by it. Yeah, Wesley actually, up. Wesley actually had like rented it or something like that and like brought it up one Saturday like all those years ago and um, we watched. He had me watch it and yeah, I thought it was good then. So the guy that wrote this is um, <clears throat> Scott Kozar, um, which I've heard this name before and now I remember why is because he, he after uh, he also wrote the uh, Texas Chainsaw remake. And the Amityville Horror remake. Hmm. Um, Stick with original, uh, original work. Right, yeah, right. Um, and then he also wrote the Crazies remake. And, well, that's a little better. Right. And then he, um, I guess he did some uh, writing for Bates Motel. And then he wrote a little, like some of, he was on the staff for uh, Haunting a Hill House. Um, as a writer, but yeah, he's got some some of those remakes are real shit. But um, but yeah, this is good. Uh, but no, I felt the interesting when you say the way they talk to each other because as soon as you were saying that, I was also again thinking about session nine, and I always thought that was also very well yeah. done in terms of the way like the guys you know remodeling the place like talk to one another. I wonder if that dude like some kind of Aesop Rock thing where that guy actually held like a like some nine to five in a warehouse or a factory or something. Um, Brad Anderson. Yeah. No. Um, no. Yeah. Cause Brad Anderson with another, uh, with somebody else wrote session nine. So maybe, I don't know, maybe Anderson like knows maybe how to film that stuff. I don't know. Um, like and make it seem better. Um, uh, no, this dude went to um, UCLA School of Theater and Film, and that's where he wrote The Machinist, so he doesn't have any kind of... And Brad Anderson is the son of a woman who was a community services administrator. Um, he was a nephew of an award-winning actress, and... Um, oh, her. That's interesting. Holland Taylor. She was, um... She was on Bosom Buddies and then um, later in life um, 
What was she in? I can't remember. There's some TV show that she's in. But, um, yeah. And then he studied anthropology and Russian um, at Bodine. So, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no blue collar work in that background at all. Um, I'll just go to your fourth, then, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, yeah, so uh, I, I found, I mean, I, it's not even worth talking about. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting common thing with people when it comes to thrillers, it seems, to wonder what the point of the, of the thriller is, like of the, of the specific movie. That's a common, like when there's negative reviews, like what was the point of this? Yeah. Um, and Stephanie um, uh, Zacher at GoSalon.com does the same thing, pretty much that Destin thompson did um with the last movie is kind of like you know like what 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 does it matter like you know like what 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 is this movie all about like what what's the point um and she kind of does the same thing here with this movie um saying that you know it sustains an ominous hum you know that the performances are good and stuff but in the end it doesn't really give me much to think about um by the end of it and i don't know i always thought like I don't know. Because you're right. Like you're, I mean, Rear Window doesn't leave you thinking about much. Um, it's, it's the same Ver, Vertigo, I think, does a little bit. But um, but certainly, so it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's like the idea of a thriller, thrill, thrill ride, right? I mean, like, right. um, I don't know. If Sometimes I think that is the point of the thriller is to just. I don't know, like make you feel like you're in the situation or make you, like, you know what I mean? It's like the immediate return of ominous terror and discomfort or whatever. Right. Right. Um, okay. Any final thoughts on that movie? No. Yeah. Um, just that it was something that until we were talking about this, I hadn't really thought of this movie and yeah. Shit, I don't know, a decade or more. Mm-hmm. But um, it was enjoyable to rewatch, and there was some stuff I'd forgotten about it. Um, honestly, like I had forgotten the twist, so I was I was like surprised again. Like, oh mm-hmm. right, yes. that, that's what happens. That's funny. <laughs> I couldn't remember what exactly happened, and I I thought it was something else, and then I was wrong. So uh, yeah, it was. Good. We're, we're getting older, you know. It's like. <laughs> When you only see something once a long time ago, it's like it's yeah, you forget stuff. I've been forgetting stuff. Like I've been starting a movie like after like four months and being like, oh, I watched this shit like four months ago. Oh yeah, that's the worst feeling. Yeah, dude, I can't remember what it is. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's a movie, oh, fuck, it's called like The Pit or something like that. It takes place in some Eastern European village where these people go, and then there's like sacrifices involved but uh-huh. it's on netflix and somewhere else and they've changed like the cover a couple yeah. of times and i'm always like oh what is this movie and then i turn it on in like 10 minutes and i'm like oh fuck it's this movie and then i gotta stop right so i probably watched the first 10 minutes of that movie like five or six times mm-hmm. could watch all another movie in that time right all right, so I think something that does leave you thinking, though, is the number two movie on your list, um, Caché from 2005. Um, it is directed by Michael Hanukkah and stars Daniel Otelia, 
Juliette uh, mm-hmm. Binoche and Maurice Benichou. It has an 89% from critics and a 78% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about the movie and what you like about it so much? So probably the most, I don't know, reflective psychological thriller on the list. Um, the premise of the movie is that uh, there's this couple that live with their son in this affluent um, neighborhood in Paris, um, La Rue de Iris or whatever. Um who discover on their doorstep one morning a videotape that is their house being filmed from a static angle across the street in an alley for two hours and nothing else. Um, so uh, the father is a renowned television personality that does like a literary like book, book club show, basically. Um, so they think that it might be like one of his admirers or maybe one of his, their, um, like teenage sons, like high school friends, like playing a prank on them. Um, but they get another one, and that one's accompanied by a picture of a, like a basically a child's drawing of like a head throwing up blood, and then another one of like a dead chicken. And um, Haneke slowly, is it really, how did you say it? Um, I've always said Haneke. Uh- Hanukkah is how I how I um when I looked it up is how people pronounce it. Okay, so Hanukkah. Now I gotta get you saying that. Um, could be really Han- Hanukkah. Hanukkah, maybe like um, yeah, like. Yeah. I don't know that I'd ever heard it. I think I just in my head. Yeah, I googled like how to pronounce his name, and you know, it's it's either Hanukkah or Hanukkah. Now that I I should have like I probably I mean, it's, it's a lowercase a, so I'm assuming. When I like phonetically did it, it's Han, like Han, Han Solo, so right. it's Hanukkah. Um, so you eventually find out that um, during these riots against uh, immigrants in the 60s, um, the father's parents had this couple of domestics that were immigrants from Algeria um, that went to protest in Paris and were part of this. Um, this murder, like this mass, like execution, basically that took place of these protesting um, immigrants. Um, they were going to adopt their son, but um, okay, I gotta look up his name. So, uh, what's the main character's name? Is it George Ace? Yeah, George and um, he uses these names all the time in like every one of his movies. You think I would know it, George and Anna. So George suspects from the third video that shows this basically like slum home um, that it might be this kid that he got his parents were going to adopt, and he convinced them not to adopt through like basically tricking the kid into killing their rooster or whatever. Um, the guy's now this middle-aged man who you know lives with his son and says that he didn't have anything to do with the videos, but George, who's really kind of the antagonist of the whole movie in a lot of ways, doesn't believe him. Um, he eventually, like, has the guy, his son disappears because he goes, like, they think his son's been kidnapped, and they call the police on Majid, who's the now-grown, like, you know, former, like, child that lived with him. Um, they arrest Majid and his son, 
um, which eventually leads to Majid like calling George over and killing himself in front of him. Um, and it turns out that the son, Piero, um, was just away with his friends. Um, the end result is that you'd never find out who was making the videotapes and sending them to him, although like we can talk about that because I have my theory. Um, but ultimately, like there's a lot. I, I, I think um, Hanukkah is talking a lot about like the inherent racism that's, that exists in France, especially in Paris towards the immigrant class and has been there for a long time. Um, and how like these two upper middle class wealthy people have these secrets. So cachet, I guess, means hidden in French. Yes. Um, these secrets they've hidden from each other and that they're both, like even though Anna, uh, the Benoche character, like feigns, not even feigns, but has this like righteous indignation at the fact that George hasn't told her things. She also has things that she's held from him, including what's pretty much like, I think, fully implied to be an affair with this friend of their family, mm -hmm. um, Pierre, um, that the son basically accuses her of having that he, she's too close with this guy. Right. Um, and the end result is like, they never tell you, you know, basically like who was filming them or why they were being filmed. Um, and that's it. Uh, gorgeous cinematography in this movie. Like this movie is yes. breathtaking at times, like the way that it, just um, Hanukkah films, like these really long shots just of nothing, basically, like a house or whatever, and he does them in such a way that's just um, gorgeous. Um, you know, not nearly as, like, overt of a thriller as the other, anything else on this list, you know, but definitely uncomfortable in a way that's very relatable, I think, especially in the culture we live in now that's full of you know, like everyone having phones and everyone recording everything and, you know, for better or worse, like almost anything that happens is captured for posterity somewhere. Um, and just the idea of this guy whose whole life is based on being in front of a camera and making his living off of, you know, like being a celebrity, you know, to have like this visceral reaction to really what amounts to nothing, you know, because it's not like they're threatened or you know, there's no, like, inherent stalking other than the fact of them seeing these videos of places that they live or, like, his childhood home is the one and then, you know, this house um, where nothing happens. Like, it's just a still video. Right. And it's his own guilt at what he, you know, his behavior in the past that kind of brings out this terrible side of him. And sure. shows that... Well, it leads to, like, paranoia and, you know, all these other things, like, being recorded like that and... And just thinking that I, I, I think in a lot of ways, like it shows that he feels that he deserves to be like punished in some way for the way that he behaved, True. but that he's still um, so self-righteous that he'll never admit mm -hmm. like openly that that's the case. And also that um, he'll never accept that punishment really, like he'll fight against it. Um, whereas I think that, you know, a character like Bale in The Machinist sort of eventually recognizes that he like gets what he deserves. Mm -hmm. you know, George is never going to admit that. Right. Um, yeah, I I think it's interesting again, another Lynch movie is um the idea of like Lost Highway, like which also has videotapes arriving um you know, to the protagonist and the wife and um that character 
what like dislikes cameras um because he likes to remember things how he remembers them um and the, here's another character who dislikes the idea of being filmed um and it's and and because the filming is a reminder of the of the filming is um represents the idea that things could be known about them that they don't want known right exactly right. things that they don't even want known to each other or maybe even to themselves sure sure yeah it becomes an objective eye like that could capture right it's it's interesting because the actions that belie what's who they really are or something like that right especially the first video there's almost no way that george could walk out of his house into his car and not see himself being taped right so right it calls into question even like well especially well, okay, so it's it's oh shit, uh, it's uh, what's what's the name? Majid, it's Majid's son. Okay. I think it's both Majid's son and, and his, his own son. son. Yes, right. they're working. Okay. Well, right. If you want, I mean, because it, it took me a while to figure out, like you know, the end credits. Like, why are they holding on the front of this damn school for so long? Like you know, like in the, the couple right. minutes prior to the credits, and then as the credits roll, and then finally I just like went back and looked at it, like you know, because okay, he, there's a reason you're holding on this shot, and then finally I realized that it was their the son, their son that Maji. I saw Maji come out, but then I realized, oh, it's their son that he goes and talks to, right? Um, and it was like, okay, so they're in on together, because it doesn't let it be like really a central focus of the shot either, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is one of the most brilliant things about the way he films like everything, which mm-hmm. is things move in and out of frame and he holds right. it like for far longer than you probably need to from a storytelling perspective. Sure. But it makes it like really effective. Right. Yeah, but I, I Well even I, the I opening shot of that movie is brilliant. Like the, the right. that what what turns into the video of them being filmed really just looks like an opening establishing shot that you would maybe run credits over. Right. Um, and it's like, there. It's like it, it, and I don't know, because I'm not like a philosopher, but it's definitely playing with the idea of, like this idea of the camera, <laughs> of the film, but also the camera, like that's being used as a plot device inside of the movie, of the film itself. And it's right. like, Yep. Um, it's 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 really interesting stuff um, that, that he does visually in that movie. I mean, Haneke is really or yeah, I just fucked up again. Um, Hanukkah is very big on the idea of um, children being like the true like truth sayers mm-hmm. to adults that like you get like the most whatever like truthful view of reality from the eyes of a child. <clears throat> There's um sort of the premise of um, Funny Games, and then definitely the premise of uh, White Ribbon, um, two other movies of his that I like a lot. Um, so I think that's like points 100% to the fact that it's those those two that are doing it. Right. Um, but I like the fact that they never come out and fully tell you, and I think that it's one of the most brilliant parts of the movie that he kind of leaves it up to your imagination, like why these things are happening, and it never gives you a clear-cut answer. Right. Um, or and yeah. really never tells you like certain things like you know when George goes to his mom, 
to talk about it. Like she barely remembers that Majid even existed. Mm-hmm. So this thing that's obviously like a central focus of, you know, in his mind, like his upbringing and, you know, who he is as a human, mm-hmm. like to his mother is like almost, you know, like a meaningless point. Right. So again, like I think it plays really strongly with the idea of um, self and perception. And- it does. That's what I was going to say when we were talking about it being Majid's son, because it wouldn't have been his son that would be during the recording in that opening shot where you said it would be almost impossible for him not to see. Right. It's like, and it almost makes you wonder if like Majid's son is the one sitting there and filming, because I don't think he's just setting the camera up. Like I don't think so. At least I'm not sure. Maybe um if it, i don't know where it would be to like not be seen you know the camera at that point um but i guess it is a static shot right so it'd have to be static, yeah. yeah so i guess it would but i just wondered if it, like if he would just ignore majid's son if he saw him I yeah i think that that's i i think that's part of what you're supposed to take from it in a lot of ways is yeah. that he's a guy that like used like learned as a child that he could basically I don't know, like abuse these immigrants to get what he wanted based on like just his own selfish needs. And like most people, I think, because, you know, that's sort of like a minor point to um, inside as well, you know, and the fact that like the, there's the riots that are occurring in in Paris at the time Mm -hmm. that people talk about a lot. And one of the characters that ends up getting killed throughout, like over the course of the movie is this, um, um, Arabic guy that may or may not have even been involved in the protests that the police have brought in just because he matches a description. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, we watched uh, Lahain um, a couple months ago for a podcast and mm-hmm. another similar idea there, you know, just right. in the sense that um, there's actually a lot of movies from between like the late 90s and the mid 2000s that are about that. Mm-hmm. Like just the general animosity yeah. that a lot of Parisians. Not even like it's like almost like a like an offhanded like hatred, like they mm-hmm. just don't care because it's not that they even like hate him. It's just that they don't even think of him as human in a lot of ways. So, right, right. And um, I think that's what he's emblematic of by being someone who's like this upper middle class, you know, elitist like white person that lives in a nice house with his attractive wife and has like these fancy dinner parties and then mm-hmm. this guy who's just trying to live his life, you know, and be a good father is living in this basically this like one bedroom slum. Right. Yeah, no, I mean it it it, it has a lot going on in this movie. Um and and I read that he actually added that whole thing with um the Algerians um and the massacre and everything and all that kind of stuff. Um kind of he already had the idea for the movie before he added all that. Yeah. Um, it was, it was much more about like this idea of like surveillance and paranoia and all that kind of stuff. And then once he heard about this, because it apparently that whole massacre was buried for close oh, yeah. to 30, it was like 30 years or something like that. It was almost like buried. And then like some people were given access in the nineties to like some reports of the time period. And they thought that it was like, initially like three people were killed that day and it ended up being like 200 some algerians yeah, were, dra- were drowned in the river like yeah well it's like um you and i talked about this like privately at one point it's like when you think about stuff like black wall street you know where, right yeah. yeah like 
I find out about something by watching, you know, television and movies. Like it's, there's a lot of things that are not necessarily favorable to the country you live in. And, you know, definitely in France, they would have tried to, like we think about them being like maybe a little more perspective, but ultimately like they're just as concerned with their national image too. So, right. So just real quick, um, James, um, Berardinelli from real, real views, um, dot com. Uh, his main criticism of it is that it, very similar to what I talk about, like when the idea of like, you know, um, plot and theme don't necessarily always come together very well. He says that the um, idea of the tapes becomes a convenient dramatic device that falls into the background once the story shifts its focus to George's past influ- on how his past influences his present. And he says that the movie ultimately ends up failing to effectively integrate those two things. Um, how would you respond to that? I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I think that I think it's all on how you interpret like what the point of the videos were. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Hanukkah ever gives you enough information to truly understand like why the two boys would want to cause that dissension, except that obviously. Um, Piero like does not respect his parents, right? Especially his mother, who especially his mother, as a, right. an adulteress. And I mean, I think that Majid's son feels the same way about like maybe those are unintended consequences, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think that it integrates it as much as you can read into it as being integrated. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if it's just, a, I don't know. I, I'd have to talk to the person to fully understand how they take this movie, but I don't know. I just think, like, one leads to the other. Like, the plot, sure. devi- the, the plot device of the films leads to the theme of this idea of being exposed suddenly, of having right. to deal with one's own past, one's own thought process, one's own actions. Like, I mean, um, it's it leads to, this external thing leads to self-reflection, self-discovery, and all these other things. So it's like, I don't see where they do have to integrate necessarily myself. But um, And think about it from, like, the lens of, like, other movies that are, and that was, like, no pun intended, but the lens of other movies that are similar in terms of like their basic premise. Like you think about like blowout or Right. You know, like movies that involve the idea of like it's always about solving some mystery. Like it's about actually investigating the media for the purpose of like solving this mystery and well, really it's a protagonist, um, like watching or listening or whatever, like, you know, like whatever the medium is versus being watched right and i think it's i mean i think making them making george like a a media personality i think is an important part of the mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. the idea that he's it's not even him being filmed it's just like these places that matter to him being filmed that you know right yeah 
I don't know. I I think it's a really well done movie, and I think it was. Um, yeah. I think it's beautiful in terms of the cinematography. Yeah, and just the way right, and just the way that we're like talking about it here, it's like you know, if if somebody's looking for a thriller to be that, that's thoughtful, like this is something that like has a lot going on in it that you could probably really talk about for quite a while if you wanted to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And honestly, like I can't, I can't say that Hanukkah's for everyone, because um, I don't even particularly like all of his movies, but. If you watch this and you enjoy it, then uh, White White Ribbon is definitely worth watching. Like that movie's beautiful. Okay. It's a movie he made in 2012 in black and white. It's a uh, gorgeous, um, and also pretty unsettling. And you know, more just about like the psychology of human nature more than so about like I don't know. Like he's never about the destination. He's just more about the journey in a lot of ways. Like in all of his movies, so. If that makes sense. Right. All of his stuff is up on Canopy, which I don't really know a lot about. But um is that the is that the service that the public libraries have, this Canopy? I don't know. Yeah, I think it might be. Yeah, it is. Public library university. The university log is in there's public library cards that you can use to like log into it. But um but all of his stuff's up on Canopy, it looks like. Um I just never I don't think I have a new enough library card to be able to probably do something like that. Because my library card is still from like the one that I wrote like when I was in like I signed it and I still have it. It's like from like second grade. Um, <clears throat> they were going to give me a different one. Um, but the uh, the woman, the old woman thought it was cute that I still had like the same card like that I wrote on second grade and she um she just like put some kind of barcode on and let me keep it. <clears throat> yeah, I don't have a library card anymore, I don't think. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, White Ribbon, it looks like you have to pay for it on Amazon. It's the only place it's really available. <laughs> it was free somewhere at some point. Right. Or, you know, you know what? I think I got it as a like a hard disk Netflix movie. Mm. Like back when that was still a thing. Jesus. Yeah. So it's been a minute. All right, um, but yeah, I really like that movie a lot. Like, I was, I didn't know what to expect going in. I, I didn't look anything up. I didn't know anything about it, and I, I was just, I was captivated by it. Like watching it all the way through, like it was a really solid, tense, you know, interesting movie. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to see more of his work then. All right, so number one on your list is 2001's Mulholland Drive, directed by David Lynch. Stars Laura Haring, Naomi Watts, Justin Thoreau, Robert Forster, Patrick Fischler, and Don Hidea. It is an 83% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why it's number one on the list? Oof, what do you say about Mulholland Drive? <laughs> um, it's a... It's, it's Lynch and it is Lynchiest, I guess. Um, the premise of the first part of the movie is this blonde ingenue arrives in Hollywood looking to become a starlet. Um, she's staying in her aunt's apartment. Her aunt is an actress that's away filming a movie. Um, she runs into a dark-haired woman who at the start of the film is in a car accident and gets amnesia and kind of wanders and hides in the apartment. Um, she finds her hiding in the shower. 
um, they form a bond um, and eventually become lovers. Then the movie changes and um, it's different. Like it's the same characters, but playing like different roles kind of slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, with the ultimate mystery, like thriller aspect of the movie being, I guess, what's real and what's not real. Um, some of the more famous, like one of the more famous, like Lynch. Lynch is like a horror director elements um, in the beginning of the movie where there's um, a man describing a dream he had to another man in a diner. Um, and they go out behind the diner and there's a creature that kind of pops out behind a dumpster or an enclosure that houses a dumpster. I don't know what you call it, like a building. Right. Um, and causes the man to faint. Um, it plays a lot again um, similar to the machinist but in like a much more extreme way um, with perception and what you can believe as the viewer is actual reality and what's not reality and even like what in the movie is plot and what's like what's like legitimate narrative and what's not right um, I did not particularly enjoy this movie the first time I saw it. Um, I found it to be stilted, like in its dialogue, and I thought it was just confusing for no reason, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like the fourth time I've seen it, and I've enjoyed this movie more every time I've watched it. Um, I think it's definitely a movie you have to watch multiple times. And, like, I think that if we discuss, like, what we feel the premise of the movie is, like, maybe we can talk more about what happens in it, because I don't know that I can give, like, a decent... Right. Like, narrative description of the plot to this movie without, I don't know, spending, like, 25 minutes just, like, saying, oh, yeah, and then then this happens, and right, then there's this character that comes in and does this thing. Um, I think what hampers this movie and why maybe I have some, had some distaste for it in the beginning and why I still kind of feel like as much as I like it, I don't share the opinion that a lot of people seem to have that this is like Lynch's seminal work and his best movie. Um, It was originally created as a um, pilot for a television series that never happened. So there are certain elements in it that I think are never meant to be explained or understood because I think they would have been explored over the course of like a long-form tv series i mean i think Um, you can see that very clearly in a lot of the subplots involving the cowboy right like the studio head that michael j anderson plays um with the ridiculous like long arms they put on him and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff i think the stuff in the restaurant with the guy who has the dream like is like are there like minor characters or something like that and like this tale like and i think all that stuff was part of probably the pilot that was filmed you know like and they were going to be recurring characters in some way so yes i think those things are also important elements to understanding like what the movie actually is so here's my yeah 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 i'm just saying that i think that those were in the pilot and they were probably going to be recurring kind of characters yeah i agree but he was able to cut it together in such a way that it's still you know the the core meaning of what they represent or who they are 
worked in the movie as well. So, to me, the premise of this movie is... I'm just going to come out and say that I think that this movie is ultimately... What's Betty's other name? Oh, jeez. Let me look it up real quick. Yeah, because it gets confusing with all of their names. Um, I don't remember who's who. Diane. Diane Selwyn. So, Diane Selwyn is right. this character that you get introduced to midway through the movie that corpse, basically. Yes. And it's a plot device that's used for the um, Laura Herring's Rita character who has amnesia. Mm-hmm. Um, she, gets, she gets triggered by seeing someone with a name tag that says Diane and then she remembers Diane Selwyn right. and that name has meaning to her and then they track down who Diane Selwyn is and they find that Diane Selwyn is basically like a rotting corpse inside an apartment. Right. I think that the entire thing is Diane Selwyn's like last moments. Yes. Like that she's rem- like things that she's remembering and ways that she wished life had worked out versus like how life actually worked out. Agreed. And that's why there's so many horrific elements to it. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, like just a dying dream in a lot of ways. And that's why it's important in the beginning when the man in the diner is um, talking about his dreams and how like uncomfortable and unnerving he was and how that same, the same diner is where, Rita, you know, is like, has that triggering moment where she remembers the name of Diane Selwyn. I think that all those things are important to point out. That right, and it's the moment where she makes the decision, what is ultimately leads to her own probably suicide, I would think. Like, is, is deciding to have her ex-lover murdered. Right. You know, like... And that- her ex-lover that wasn't nearly the lover that she so the whole first part of the movie is how she wished that things would have gone yes like where she's the starlet Mm -hmm. she's the one that's got the big break opportunity she's the one that's you know in control of like kind of her destiny or like at least she's the one that like people like want sure and And it's a more passionate love affair you know Right. Like, you know, Rita is kind of relies on her, you know, yeah. I mean Right, as opposed to her kind of being used by um uh Camilla. Right. Um, who is Rita in like the second half of the movie. Right. The Laura Laura Helling yeah. Herring character. Um so yeah, so I and I think that a lot of that stuff is maybe not a hundred percent answered. But um I definitely think that there's a theme of like the perception of what Hollywood is going to be. And Lynch is super into the idea of like the dark underside of California and specifically Mm -hmm. the film industry in Hollywood. And there's a lot of that in Inland Empire a few years after this. Since like the dark underbelly of everything, like small town America, Hollywood, like all that kind of stuff. I mean, and that's also, he, he kind of deals with that here a little bit too. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that the opening montage over the credits is people doing like swing dancing against a blue background and it makes it like 
instead of being like normally just like the obnoxious shit that swing dancing is like it makes it like uncomfortable and it feels like alien and yeah well that's that's the big well that well see that's the one moment of the of the fantasy right so like if the whole beginning is is just her kind of like fantasy before she dies or like within like you know like a short period before she dies like I think it's the one moment of truth is I think because she mentions it both in the reality to some degree and it's in that fantasy is this idea that she won a dance contest. Yeah. And I think that dance contest, it's like done in this kind of like weird, off-putting kind of, yeah, uncomfortable. Like superimposed over like a stark like blue background. Yeah, but it's like part of that like dreaminess of like winning this thing and then coming out to make it big in Hollywood. Right. Um, but it is the reality as well, like that she really did win a dance contest and come to Hollywood. It's just that she failed rather than succeeded. Um, right. And I think that there's elements that even, so again, I'm, pretty firmly convinced that all of that stuff is her almost like wish fulfillment yes like memory of like her life but there's elements that point that even she knows at that point that it's not real because there's the thing where like when the woman says goodbye to her like leaving the airport and then they get in the car and they're driving away where it's almost like uh like a mocking laughter that happens there and there's really like just i don't like uncomfortable not uncomfortable but like the lynch uncomfortable where the way that he films something like makes you feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. where you can see that not everything is like this bright technicolor world that like most of the film is filmed in up to that point where there is like darkness and hints that like not everything is as good as what she thinks it is right and you you look at the thing like it actually kind of reminded me of um, a movie we talked about recently uh, starry eyes mm. the audition segment where she's mm-hmm. with the much older man that's um obviously like his initial goal is to try and sort of like molest her and she like leans into it and then becomes this the focal point of everyone's attention and the fact that you think that, like that's probably not how things went and maybe that's how she wishes that she had behaved when she first got there mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, I think we're I think we're pretty much in agreement, like in just like the general idea, like um, of all that, like, um, and and I think once you have that interpretation, I think a lot of things just fall into place, like, um, uh, and I mean, like, like Silencio is like the the club, yeah, is is you know like the big key to that whole movie. I think in a lot of ways, like it's the idea that um, you know, nothing is what it seems. You know, like, and that's like, like and everything is manufactured. Yes, oh. right. Pardon me, I didn't mean to yawn. So yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, and then Silencio ties into the death. You know, I mean, it's like I think there's right. like you know, and then there's like the blue key that they have in the fantasy, which is like you know the one thing that ends up connecting her back to reality in some ways, which is that blue key ends up being the key that was the sign that you know camilla was murdered you know when she hires the hitman is also the same blue key that is used to unlock the box and the box ends up becomes what representative of the fantasy i suppose you know that like you know once it's unlocked like it ends um so i mean a lot of things fall into place once you kind of get to the idea that that's all fantasy i mean 
Yeah, I mean, again, so when I first saw this movie, I think that I thought it was a little too pretentious. Yeah. A lot too pretentious. I felt the same way about Inland Empire. Like, I've now watched Inland Empire three times, and I've enjoyed it more every time. I agree with that. I still think Um, Inland Empire is more pretentious than this movie, but... um, Sure. But it's, I still, I like it more than every time I see it, like... I think that this movie is... I think that's more unknowable than this movie. I agree. In some ways, yeah. Well, it's... Fuck, I don't even know how to say it. So, I was thinking about this tonight. Um, I went to my parents for dinner and driving back to my parents, I was thinking, like, how the fuck do you talk about Mulholland Drive? And, like, make it where you can actually have a conversation about it. And I think one of the things that Lynch does, and he does it to various degrees and everything he does, is he doesn't really film characters. He films like archetypes and symbols that he makes people in his stuff. Like you think about like the way that he scripts dialogue and the way that he has people deliver dialogue and just the way that he develops characters. And he's always giving you everything. He's never letting you learn someone from the ground up. You know what I mean? Like you're always getting them. I don't know how to say how I want to say it, but like, I think that was one of the most off-putting things to me at first about this movie when I first saw it is that what do you really ever learn about them that's true? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's mm-hmm. always some weird stilted dialogue between two people that sounds like really unnatural, but like, and we, this is probably from the podcast because I've watched so much Lynch now in the past couple of years mm-hmm. and in like a really short period of time that I think that it's more or less, you're never really meant to know his characters as characters. You know what I mean? Right. Like, they're not right. meant to be... Like, he's one of the few people that can write a certain way, and it never... Like, as long as you have that tacit agreement with him that you're just going to let things happen, mm-hmm. like, it always pays out in the end. And there's certain people that, like, write, like, that clipped, like, really purposeful dialogue, and I think that sometimes it's not as effective. But I think that Lynch because Lynch is always dealing with like perception and reality, you know, like he's constantly like moving into like dream realities and like every movie he makes has some element of like uncertainty in what you're seeing. Like, is this actually like quote unquote happening in the, in the movie or is it like only happening in someone's imagination or, you know, is it only happening to you as the viewer? Cause I think he does make you like an accomplice to his filmmaking. Does yes. that make it like, it does it does yeah like you're you're just as culpable in what's happening to these characters because you're watching it as he is by well, because you're like, watching it and if they're all archetypes you are them right or you're like you read things into it where right yeah it might not even be the same interpretation that someone else would have right but by making the interpretation you become like yeah it's like you've you've bought into the game yeah and i think that there's a lot of this movie which is why he doesn't like telling anybody about his movies right because why why should he right I mean, it's not yeah. about that it's about he actually like what he, he actually loves the idea that people come up with these like sometimes outrageous interpretations of the stuff but i think that if you like watching this now and this is a this is the second time i've watched this movie now since the third season of twin peaks was on showtime 
I think there's a lot of things that happen in that that probably would have been central points to a Mulholland Drive. I think that's right. Television series. I think you're probably right about that, yes. And especially the idea of like how he portrays Laura Palmer and the idea that the quote-unquote real world is actually kind of a fractured version of this, you know, yeah. shared universe of his. Sure. Well, I mean, you, you know what's interesting is that initially – Initially, this was supposed to be an Audrey Horn pilot. Really? Of Audrey Horn going to L.A.? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, and it was going to be that character. It was going to be a spinoff, like ABC. I think it was ABC wanted to bring back like something related to Twin Peaks like in the late 90s um, already. And, they, and it was, the idea was going to be, as, from what I understand, it was supposed to be Audrey Horn in L.A. Um. And if you look, I don't know if you have heard this before, but um, in the um, in Silencio, um, uh, oh God, damn it, I'm forgetting her name. Um, no Ray. What's it? What, no, 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 what's uh, what's uh, Laura Palmer's friend's name? Um, that is Maddie? with. Oh no, that's her cousin. That's her cousin. Um, uh, that's in the train car with her. Oh fuck! Um, I know, right? Um, God, I've heard that name like seven thousand. I know, right? They they reference it all the time in Twin Peaks. Um, but yeah, anyway, Pulaski, Ronette Pulaski, Pulaski, yeah, yeah, something like that. Ronette, it's it's Ronette Pulaski, yeah, uh, like Pulaski Highway, like here. Um, yeah, um, she um she's in Silencio. Um, and there's a girl that's next to her that nobody can agree on whether it is or not, but it looks exactly like Laura Palmer. Um, they, she, they're, sit, they're, they're sitting in the background, like, um, when they walk in, um, they're like higher up, like in the, um, in the rows and it's definitely Renette Pulaski is that actress. Um, there's a blonde that's sitting next to her that looks like Laura Palmer. Um, but Laura Palmer of Shirley's not billed in the movie, but the girl that plays Renette Plasky, her that actress is billed as being a girl in Silencio or whatever. Um, but the blonde is not billed, apparently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's another one of these things. So I think you're right. I think it's like, I think all that stuff would have like played in in some way. And I mean, think about Audrey Horn's story in The Return in season three. Right. Of like her, you know, of her waking up out of like this kind of, you know, dream of what life is in some ways. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, it's, it, there's similarities there, but I mean, similarities with everything that he does. Like, you know, I mean, like what's Lost Highway? Lost Highway is the same thing. I mean, the, the, the whole, what, middle of that movie is just a fantasy of, in the first part of the movie, like the the first like thirty minutes and the second you know hour and fifteen minutes is all fantasies of this guy who's killed his fucking wife and can't accept it. I mean, sure. um, Inland Empire is similar um, in the sep the in the, in the sense that there's fantasies that are going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in the terms of the way he writes, I've always been fascinated by like that what you're describing in terms of like the the kind of like short clipped way he writes 
what it reminds me of is it reminds me of a more earthy Samuel Beckett. That's interesting. Because I actually, in a similar way, like I think of him as being a more um, metaphysical uh, David Mamet. In like the way that he writes dialogue. That, that's a, that's an interesting like way to like both of us look at those things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it reminds me very much a lot of times like when I when I read his dialogue, something like uh, Endgame or something like that. Like, and but it's like it's actually rooted in a plot to some degree. Um, Lynch's stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Lynch's. Lynch is a wonder. I mean, even that like damn rabbit thing, like once he like cut all of that stuff together with the damn three three rabbits. I don't know if you've watched that. Um, the stuff that's in Inland Empire that's like right. but it's, it's just pieces of it. Like he cut like all that footage together. Um so I think it's like forty minutes long or something like that in three parts, like um, but it's a total of like forty minutes. But god damn it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. You know that's what's her name, right? Who? Uh, Laura um, Herring. Oh, that's doing one of the voices for it. One of the rabbits, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're all like notable, like people that are in his movies a lot, like that are um, doing those voices. If I remember, I didn't. I I don't remember one of them was her. But yeah, even that kind of shit's like fascinating to me, like because like if you really sit there and like watch it and pay attention to it, it's like okay, there's something, there's actually something going on here. Like, there's a story that's being told here as fractured and stupid, right. like, fucking silly as, like, all this is. There's some sort of, like, you know, I think it's, I think it's Firewalk with me. I think there's something going on with the potential of child molestation and definitely an affair um, that's happening, like, with the, with the father rabbit, um, yeah. with somebody. And it's like, there, you know, I mean, there's, um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. There's a story that's going on there. I haven't studied it enough to like completely figure it out, but it's like everything he does is like has those elements to it that like you just it makes you want to like kind of figure it out and like watch it and like and I watch think it that's multiple times. right. And I think that's what you mean. Like what's almost like he makes you culpable in some ways. Like right, because it feels like it all always feels really voyeuristic too in a lot of ways. Yes, and I know that like. I, I read some complaints about his sexualization of women, especially in this and um, Inland Empire. But I think that's part of like him making you, because even though like Naomi Watts and um, Laura Herring are both really attractive, it's more uncomfortable, I think, like when they're making out with each other than it is like super erotic. You know what I mean? Like, it's, and it feels like really disingenuine i guess i don't know like it's it's not it's not done in like the red shoe diaries way sure of like showing two women making out it's done in a very well right i mean think think about it real quick when has lynch really ever filmed sex in any way that's like romantic or positive or like you know lustful like you know or anything really like i mean it's like it's it doesn't happen in blue velvet um the opposite of that in blue velvet right it's like 
Christ, the most like, you know, sexual thing that he might actually film when you really think about it, as sick as this sounds, is Laura when she gets into the idea that Bob and her are having sex. When she like actually like just gives in and just kind of accepts it. That might be the most loving you see, like any kind of sex filmed in a David Lynch thing. Like like the way she grabs him and holds him and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's not pretty. Like, no, sex is I, never and pretty. And I always took that as her, like, just trying to hold on to some piece of herself as, like, everything's being, like, destroyed. Like, in her. Maybe, maybe. Rather than, like, it being, like, her yeah, any sort of love. Yeah, I I don't know if it's love, but I think certainly lust, and I think that's what makes it so damn disturbing. Like, it is pretty disturbing. Yes. Um, I yeah, he doesn't make sex easy at all. Like in any of his movies. I mean, think about the return. Like in you know, in Twin Peaks, it's like the one like really sex scene in that. It's like think of how awkward and uncomfortable that is. Like to the point where like she has to like cover his face and stuff like that. You know, like so she can go through with it. I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. There's nothing. Who are you talking about? Is that one Dougie? No, no, no. Oh no, not the Dougie. Right, I forgot about the Dougie sex scene. That's yeah. That's like actually maybe the most. But no, right, right. The Dougie sex scene. Because I mean, the the man who has no right. the guy who has no mind is like you know the most loving sex scene maybe or the most intense. Um, But um, no, I was talking about the Cooper um, Diane. Um, oh yeah, that's horrifying towards yeah. the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Especially because they're no longer the they're no longer the archetypes; they're actual characters at that point, which is right. what makes it like right, right. Yeah, it's now it's sex isn't a like a ever seen as a positive thing in Lynch a lot of times. No. Um. Yeah, but I find the guy I find the guy absolutely fascinating. Um. It's. I hope. I hope he gets another movie, at least one more under his belt, if he can. I don't know. Um, if he's working on anything or whatever. He's just doing his uh, weather reports every day, like every day on YouTube. You know about those? Uh, uh, I haven't no. seen any of that. No, he just um has like a one minute, like roughly like YouTube video, like most days, where he just um is looks like he's sitting down in his basement and he um he just looks outside and reports the weather. <laughs> Sounds like a very lunch thing. <laughs> Just looks outside and it's like, you know, 67 degrees today and looks partly cloudy. <laughs> I don't think, I think Lynch is, Lynch is obviously a progressive, okay? I mean, it's like, you know, this claim that, like, about sexualizing women and stuff like that. I just think that he's, like, it's almost like the shit that's going on with Biden to some degree. And don't get me wrong. Like, touching people and shit's fucking creepy as hell. Like, and that doesn't need to happen. But it, it, but it is an older mentality. And it's like, do I think he, like, finds women beautiful? And do I think he has no problem telling People that he finds women, and particularly certain women, beautiful. I think he has no problem with any of that. But I also don't think he's. I don't think he's a creep. You know, Um, think about like you know. I know some of it was played for laughs, but think about what he does with Dennis Denise, um, in what 1990 in terms of 
I, I mean, who the fuck's doing that in 1990 on network television and getting away with it on ABC? Um, and then think about what he does with it in the third season when you see her successful and like, you know, running things. And it's like that line that I love, like that he has, it's like, you know, when he talks about like all the people that like talk behind your back and he says, I used to tell those people to fix your hearts or die. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think Lynch is like a predatory or anything in any way, like, or anything I mean, like that. I don't. I've never heard any of that from any of the actresses. That no, no, no. I do. I think. Do I? Do I? Burns come back more than enough times. That... Sure, sure. Yep. I. So do I think that? Do I think he's someone who's very open about like you know, like the the beauty of woman and stuff like that? Absolutely. Um, I don't necessarily find the way that he films women or anything like that though problematic. Like some people might suggest. I mean, yeah. I agree. I think it's also important with this movie before we wrap it up completely to talk about um, how much this did for Naomi Watts' career. Yeah. Like, this made Naomi Watts almost like a household name. I mean, I don't know what she had done before this. She definitely was, like, pretty renowned after this movie. This is also, this is his only nomination for... um, an Academy Award, right? Best director does, he was does, for? Well, do, oh, and the straight story. Straight story, I was going to say, yeah, right. Um, let me look at the we watched. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, the filmography. So she does plenty of stuff before this, um, but they're all like pretty much low level stuff um, that she doesn't really have a lot going on in. So. Probably, uh, Children of the Corn 4. She was in White Sargasso Sea. That's a good movie. Oh, she was in Tank Girl, too. Um, such a fantastic movie. And then her lead in uh, The Ring. Yeah, but that's that's after this, though. That's a year after this. After. Yeah. But oh, yeah. Fuck. We just mm-hmm. saw this. I forgot she was in, in King Kong. Right. Yeah, but then she does 21 Grams. Um, and then, yeah, there's the ring stuff. I Heart Huckabees was another kind of like indie breakthrough for her to some degree. Her being in that, I think. Um, oh, right. I forgot she was in The Painted Tale. The movie? Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's what like catapults her into the public consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, she was in Sleepwalkers and um on television as well, like right before this. Sleepwalkers, I don't know what that is. Um Stephen King thing? Uh, that's a movie. No, nah, that's a, that, that's a movie. It was um, it was something that um, it was a TV show, very short lived. Um, that uh, uh David uh, Esquire um was involved with. It was a uh, I only remember it because of the NBC show and NBC. Like I watched NBC shit at that time because Seinfeld and stuff was still on and all that kind of stuff. But um, 
I forgot that she was. I I I I, well, I wouldn't have remembered that she was in that. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, so yeah, so rabbits. Um, she does one of the voices in rabbits in that thing. It's it's her and Laura Haring and um, Scott Coffee, who also has a small role in Mulholland Drive, because he must have filmed it during that time. Yeah, and then just like reuse some of it um, later on. Rebecca Del Rio also does a small part in that. I guess the oh right because there it breaks into a song at one point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's only yeah. It's only like a, the the web version. If you look at it, it's fifty minutes long. It's 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 worth watching the entire thing if you can take it. I think I can take it. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. Yeah. Uh, I got to catch back up on um, movies that I watch not for the podcast. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, are you caught off for next week? Pretty much. What's next week? <laughs> Best movies that haven't aged well. Yeah. I yeah. think I watched all of them. Yeah. Uh, I got to look up that list. Yeah, I got three movies for the first week of October that I still got to watch. But. Uh, see, I, I was complaining to you about this offline. Like, I got to fucking scroll through a whole bunch of shit-ass <laughs> iPhone notes. I found it. Um, I still have to watch two of them. But Frankie's still not home this week, so I got time. Right. So speaking of that, um, so this is the beginning of a four-week run for us. So we're going to be here four straight weeks with new episodes, um, starting with this episode tonight. Then next week, episode eighty-five will be the best. Um, the top. What is it? How do how do I need to word that? So the the top five best movies that have not aged well. Um, and then the week after that, the first week of October, we will be doing the top five avant-garde horror movies to start off our horror month during October. And then the week after that, we will be doing a first watch of the 1987, is that right, Frank? 87's Child's Play. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, with uh, two friends of the podcast, uh, Mike Bledsoe and Ryan Wellmaker. And then we'll be taking a week break, and then we'll be back at the end of October for the first ever horror-specific Fresh Five, um, where Frank will give his top five movies, horror movies that he's watched over roughly the past, you know, like three to six months or so. I got 14 um, movies on that list now. So Jesus. Um, and I've watched some of those and my guess is what you'll end up doing is like fucking me and I haven't seen any of the ones you actually put on the list. I almost, so I, I came close to renting a movie yesterday. Mm-hmm. That's $20 right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I almost like super fucked you. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't think it would be less. Well, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe by the time you get around to it, it'll only be like six ninety nine. Maybe. Yeah. But I held back. But you I, don't know know I, I don't know if it would have made the list anyway. Right. Um, and then, of course, always we every week we are doing the quick cage in the middle of the week. Um, you got candidates for this week, Frank? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
which is now a movie that is not currently on the list that I've told you. So oh shit, okay, that's that's once again. If I can find a new Cage movie to watch that takes the place of the ones that I want to talk about, then I'll do that. (laughs) Well, we eventually get to a point though where you have to talk about it and you'll have to rewatch it again. Yeah, week one hundred and twenty. Right. If I gotta watch fucking Captain Crowley's mandolin or a score to settle or something again, then I guess it's fine. It'll there'll be enough time passed between myself and those movies where I won't mind so much watching it again. Right. Um, I heard uh, Nicholas Cage is going to. Well, I guess I probably should talk about Nicholas Cage. I heard Nicholas Cage is going to be doing um playing Superman in a Flash movie. Apparently, it's possible. As oh. like, yeah, which is which I'm sure is a joke, right? I mean, like, um, I think it just exposes how fucking terrible DC is, like overall as like a film production company. That's, like that's because like why are you going red tongue in yes. cheek not in a way? Yes. It... Right. Right. Yes. Like why why like you have you've have a flash franchise that you've been putting not like eight years into on television but now you're going to do a movie of it instead too on top of that and then you're going to cast Nicolas Cage as a 20 year old in joke as Superman it's, Jesus Christ like they're just brain dead and um without any it's honestly a really depressing in joke too because like a lot of people were super into the kevin smith um like vision of superman at the time right and it was um like i was really disappointed that that movie never got made honestly yeah so i don't know like it's almost like not even funny as an in joke like it's like oh haha but also yeah. like way to way to show like how dysfunctional you've been now for right. three decades like making and apparently movies. they're casting I read somewhere where it's like they're going to in some one of these fucking movies are going to cast maybe it's that Batman movie they're going to do like I don't I don't I who knows I, it's they're going to cast Jim Carrey as the old Joker and it's like like an older version of the Joker and it's like Jesus Christ like well that wouldn't like, be in this Batman movie. how many oh, right so like so what? Like, it's like some something with like Affleck in it again, like because the yeah, no, got... that's gonna happen. Well, what he's supposed to be. That? Yeah, it's it's what the, I can't remember. It's a different movie though. Is that the Flash too? I don't know. I, he's supposed I read to that, appear in. I think I read that he's definitely reprising the role. Yeah, it's in the Flash. I think like oh. everything's centered around the fucking Flash. I who knows, dude? It it is terrible. They they are just creatively bankrupt. And so scattered, like they need somebody to just take charge of that and just wipe it all clean to start over. I thought it was going to be James Gunn. I know that's what I heard for a while, but um, like that would have made sense. You got a guy that's got the experience of working right in a shared universe that actually has like strong creative vision. Yeah, what's this podcast about? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. Well, they're all everything's a fucking thriller. They're all thrillers. <laughs> Um, so. Thrilling to talk about. <laughs> right. Um, it made okay. Me really so. uncomfortable. I want to say that again. Like I was very like, I don't know. I felt very uncomfortable watching that movie this time. So. What? The Machinist. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huh. 
Um, really? Eh, I mean, and there's some uncomfortable stuff in it, but um, yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. So Lisa Schwartzbaum from Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. Um, in her review tried to argue that his boniness is disrespectful to survivors of concentration camps. That's a stretch. A little bit, I thought. A little bit. Maybe if you argue that it's... I don't know. Like... I, right. I, never anything in this movie that... Right. Even right. hints at any kind of comparison. I agree. I agree. Except for the fact that there's people in concentration camps that what ended was up. Machinist? Is that 04? 04. It's 04. Was there some like I mean there's Holocaust movies all the time so maybe there was something around that time that added the public consciousness I don't know. that caused her to say that. I don't know. It, that, that seems like a really big stretch of it, just trying to no, take I, a, a hot take. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think for me, Cachet was like the was like the one that like really stuck out to me. But that's just because it was new and I hadn't to new, new to me. Like you know, I hadn't right. seen it, and like it's it's the thing that I'm gonna like take away from this list overall is is that movie. Um, but so yeah, let me I ask mean, you this question because I said this to you the other night. Uh-huh. How weird is it that Cachet was being sold? in chain retail stores for like a year and a half. Like there were copies of Cache you could get. That is like I remember walking into that's Target weird. and Cache was like right there. Because that's that's how I saw it. Right. And I thought it was like some kind of horror movie or something. Mm-hmm. Not what I expected it to be. Right. Because I didn't really know anything about um, Hanukkah at that time. Mm-hmm. That is, that's weird. Yeah. That's really weird. So I don't know like why it was being marketed like that. Yeah. I yeah. Um, I didn't. I don't always look into the production companies and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I have no idea. Like, distribution in America. Yeah, I have no idea. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, like looking at like the just the release stuff about it, and like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Like why it would be, you know? I had actually forgotten about it until I saw the theatrical cover because that's what the DVD cover looks like. Yeah, and I was like, oh fuck, man! This was, like I used to see that movie like every week. I'd go into Target. <laughs> right. <sighs> Is this company Artificial Eye that like released released it overseas, but also I don't know they released their overseas DVD too. Never mind. Yeah, I have no idea. Sony released it over here. So weird. I mean, well, a lot of that Canal Plus stuff was being released at the time, like the indie stuff. Right, right, maybe. Yeah, but it feels like more like something you'd find in Borders rather than. Hmm. Sure, yeah, sure. Maybe even Best Buy, but not on a shelf in Target. Right. Yeah. No, but hey, weird. Target sells vinyl, so they just are ahead of the curve in a lot of weeks. 
Uh, all right. So, yeah, I mean, it was an, an bunch of enjoyable movies to watch. Cache yeah. is the one I'm going to take away from. Holland Drive is, yeah, you're right, better probably every time I see it. But, um, but yeah. yeah, it's a good list. I'm excited to talk about next week's movies. Um, a lot of, lot of really good movies on there with um, some yeah, questionable things about each of them. So. All right. So that's our podcast of the week. Um, Thanks for listening. And um, everybody have a good week. Have a good night.